You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Last week here at church, um, somebody stood to me and... um, Max, I feel like my mic is cutting out. Can I borrow yours? Thank you, sir. Um, May, <laughs> I'll just say it was May. She doesn't care if I say it was her. Uh, suggested, like, can we talk about sin sometime? Like, we never talk about sin. And what is sin to us now? And I thought, hey, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, uh, every day morning, thank you, Max. Um, every Monday morning, I'm staring well, not every Monday morning, because sometimes we're in a series and it's not hard to know what I'm going to speak on. But many Monday mornings, I'm staring at my computer screen and that blinking cursor on a Word document being like, okay, what do I say to this community this week? So if you have suggestions, if you have topics you want to hear me talk about, please tell me because um, uh, I want to be able to address what you want me to address, but I also like getting ideas. So anyway, this is, this is May's idea. If you don't like this topic, talk to May, okay? Um, but yeah, no, it's an, it's an interesting topic, this topic of sin. Um, and we don't really talk about it here because let's be frank, it's kind of a triggering topic, right? Many of us, most of us grew up in traditions where that word sin was used to manipulate us or scare us into submission, um, you know, control us, right? And so, uh, I'm curious actually at the top here, we're not going to wait to get into a conversation. I'm curious, um, what is sin to you? How do you define it? Or perhaps better put, how did you define it? Maybe. Um, Either one goes, what is it now to you? What was it then? Does anybody want to share um, their definition of sin and elucidate or illuminate us? Yeah. Oh, Max, you're just doing this. Okay, cool. Want to? I want to promote dialogue here always. Um, it's okay if nobody wants to. I don't know. I can. I have already prepared my definition. Um, but yeah, anybody want to jump in and share? Yeah. What? Oh, oh, May, you have to, I guess. This is your whole, whole thing is your idea. Hold on a second. Here is this microphone. Thank you. Um, the way that I always viewed sin or the way that I was taught growing up was an act against God. Okay. Yeah. That was pretty, pretty standard. Um, but I really am curious to see if what you say this morning, because of what we were talking about last week okay. and, uh, the new, well, the definition that I love that you have of sin. Okay. Yo, so yeah. I'm well, not, well, I'm not yeah. going to. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to there. Yeah, no, but that's true. I mean, that's that's the way I was raised. That sin is this act of rebellion against God, um, originating in the first sin, right, as an act of betrayal against God and his will, right, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, right? Uh, anybody else want to jump in and offer a definition or uh, how they were raised to be, you know, regarding what sin is, anybody? Okay, yeah. Oh, Jen, cool. Yep. I think uh, my definition would be anything that made my dad mad. <laughs> Wait, you mean your heavenly dad or your or both? No, my earthly father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
anything like I even today am learning through therapy that if I conceive that I've done anything wrong, I have such a adverse reaction to that. And that's just like in me deep because anything bad or wrong or mistake or anything, it'll send you to hell. So, so that's connected to your self-image. Total, and when you, I've heard you talk about that before and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me too. Like so much of my personal self-image was based upon what my father thought of me and my need to please him. And of course that was related to how I thought of God, my heavenly father, which is terrible. Um, and it's just like how I'm hardwired and now I'm a people pleaser, you know? Okay. So I won't get into that. <laughs> now it becomes therapy for Aaron, but, um, but yeah, no, I'm right there with you, Jen. Good stuff. Um, yeah. So like May, I was taught that sin is any action or idea that separates us from God, right? Which is a fascinating notion, especially the part about how certain ideas can separate you from God. We were taught to believe in what's called thought crime, that Orwellian term thought crime, right? That there's certain beliefs, certain ideas you can hold in your head that can result in your heavenly father separating himself from you or you separating yourself from him and end up with you being eternally tormented for it, for thought crime, right? Um, can you imagine a parent who rejects their child or punishes their child for thought crime, for not believing the correct theological and metaphysical things about them. What kind of a parent behaves that way? Such a person we would say today needs therapy or needs to be on medication, yes? But God gets a pass, we're told, or we're supposed to assume that it must somehow be good for us. In general, sin is a religious and theological concept. That word sin is a religious and theological word that comes packaged with these kinds of supernatural and metaphysical ideas, right? Even though sin has to do with morality and ethics, good and evil, right and wrong, the concept of sin is fundamentally a religious and theological one. Uh, which says that there's certain behaviors and ideas that have spiritual and supernatural consequences. So sin is not just a religious term for ethics and morality. It's not just a euphemism for ethics and morality. Uh, but it's a really loaded word that carries all this theological and supernatural baggage. But it's kind of an interesting subject, right? Because the concept of sin has to do with ethics and morality still. It does. And one of the big questions that often comes up for people in deconstruction, I've found over the last decade, being the pastor of this crazy little church, um, sometimes people come into a community like this, and one of the first things they ask me is, so does anything go now? <laughs> um, and they ask it in good faith. It's not meant to be like a, a slight. They, they, they generally, genuinely want to know, does anything go now? Right? And, and they're concerned. Now that we no longer see the Bible as an errant, or as the highest moral authority, um, now, now that we no longer believe in God the way that we used to, does anything go now? What do we base our morals on, if anything at all? Can we just do whatever we want? 
And I think that's often code language for sex, frankly, uh, depending on the individual asking. Sometimes like, what do you mean? You're not talking about being an ax murderer, right? You're talking about something else. What are you talking about? I think it usually has to do with sex. Um, can we just do whatever we want? I think that's an interesting question though, because it's often based on an underlying assumption that religion or faith is the moral mechanism that keeps us from being monsters. To which I like to respond, if you can't tell the difference between right and wrong, you lack empathy, not religion. <laughs> and yet maybe for the small segment, for a small segment of the population who lack the capacity for empathy because of some kind of cognition issue, maybe psychopathy, I don't know. For, for a small segment of, segment of the population who lack the capacity for empathy, maybe they need the fear of God and eternal damnation to keep them from being an axe murderer. I don't know. If that's what it takes, then by all means, I want that person to be a fundamentalist, right? But for most of us, we don't need the threat of eternal punishment or the promise of eternal rewards and mansions and crowns on high to not be an asshole. In fact, if that's what someone needs to not be an asshole, then they're probably an asshole with or without religion. Can we say asshole in church? Is that a sin? <laughs> probably. Max, you said God damn it in that song earlier. You know, it's kind of a sad commentary on the nature of humanity if one believes that the only thing keeping us decent is the selfish desire to not burn in hell or the selfish desire for mansions and crowns and glory on high, for, for treasures in heaven, as it were. I think most of us are more mature and humane than that. At least I would hope so. I think most of us are motivated by empathy, by genuine care and concern for others, by compassion, rather than the fear of what some brutal cosmic deity might do to us. And this is a good thing, right? It's a good thing that we don't need to believe in that stuff anymore to be decent people. It means we're actually decent people. Yes? I really think fundamentalism causes arrested development, not the TV show. Fundamentalism causes arrested development, arrested emotional development. I think it keeps people emotionally and intellectually immature. It stunts our growth. It's juvenile, you could say. Nothing against kids, but you know what I mean. So to be clear, I no longer believe in sin but I do believe in right and wrong. I no longer believe in sin, but I do believe in good and evil. I no longer believe in sin, but I do believe there are some behaviors and ideas that are better for human flourishing and human well-being than others. In other words, I think we can say with objective certainty even, I think we can say that things like rape, murder, and slavery are not beneficial for human well-being and human flourishing. I don't think that's really a matter of an opinion. I, I think that's a matter of fact. Do we really need scientific studies that show us people live longer and live happier, healthier lives if they're not living in societies where things like, things like rape, murder, and slavery are just allowed to go on unchecked? 
Do we need studies to know that societies where sexism, homophobia, racism, and other forms of gross inequality are permitted or even encouraged? Do we really need studies to know that such societies are not as beneficial for human well-being and human flourishing than societies where those things are mitigated or eliminated? I think we can say with objective certainty that some behaviors and ideas are better for human flourishing and human well-being than others. And I think that means we can say, if I may be so bold, that there is objective good and evil. There is objective right and wrong. I'm not saying it's always clear. Certainly it's not. Um, the ideas and behaviors that are best for human well-being are not always clear. And we must wrestle with such questions in communities like this one, in relationship to others, both on a small scale and a, and a macro scale. I mean, that's what living in a republic or a democracy, hopefully, is about. Us processing together what kind of society is best for human well-being, hopefully moving in that direction. The arch of history is long, but hopefully it bends towards justice and societies and communities that are better for human well-being and human flourishing than they were in the past. So again, this doesn't solve all of our problems, right? This isn't a simple solution, but it is, in my estimation, the clearest way forward, asking ourselves collectively and individually what ideas and behaviors are better for human well-being and human flourishing than others? And this is how we define our moral categories. If you ask, well, let's, let's put it this way. That standard, that approach is far better than appealing to ancient tradition, divine revelation, so-called divine revelation, in my opinion. If you ask a religious conservative of almost any religion, by that, I mean Christianity, Judaism, Islam. If you ask them, such a conservative, what is best for human well-being, the answer you're probably going to get will sound something like, the will of God is what's best for human well-being, and the will of God is clearly outlined in our ancient sacred text. Therefore, if God says in our text that women are to be subservient to men, and their places in the home, then that is what's best for their well-being and the well-being of society. If our text says gay people are to either become straight or remain celibate, then that is what's best for their well-being and for society's well-being. The list could go on, and it does. Conservative religion usually defines morality and what's best for human well-being based upon divine revelation. And by that, they mean their text. And by that, they mean their hermeneutic or their reading of their text. Let's be clear about this. Really what that's about is their particular interpretation, their particular hermeneutic, their particular lens and way of reading the text. Because there's lots of ways of reading the text. And that those texts were, of course, written by people living a long time ago who arguably we're doing the best they could at the time. Okay, we can give them that. 
meaning they were doing their best to figure out what it meant to be good people or to be the people of God in the world. We, we can give them that maybe, maybe sometimes, right? But they still missed it. They still were patriarchal and often cruel to each other in the name of God, even. They did not know what we know now about the world, the cosmos, and the human condition. They just didn't. And that matters for ethics, for morality, for the kinds of community we need to set up, for what's best for human well-being. That absolutely matters. But to be clear, even our ancient sacred texts, I'm talking about the Quran, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, even these texts teach us to be guided by questions like, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? What does justice and equality, goodness and kindness and compassion, what does that look like in the world, in my life? in my moment in history. We're taught by our sacred texts, in other words, to predicate our moral compass on those questions. So there's a fundamental contradiction at work when religious conservatives say, scripture is the ultimate moral authority, and then they downplay the fact that scripture tells us that empathy and compassion are the ultimate moral authority. Thus, the conservative argument that scripture and divine revelation trumps empathy and compassion is itself trumped by scripture or refuted by scripture. In other words, nothing trumps love. Nothing trumps compassion and empathy. Nothing trumps the question, what does it look like to treat my neighbor like the way I want to be treated? That is divine revelation according to our sacred text. That is the basis of our moral compass, you could say. It's often said that without God, everything is permitted or anything goes. That's often a conservative argument, that we need God, because otherwise the whole world, it's just anarchy, nihilism, you know, cats living with dogs and all kinds of crazy stuff going on, right? We're taught, we're taught that we need God, otherwise everything is permitted or anything goes. Without God, we, you, know, you can do whatever you want. But historically speaking, the opposite is actually true. With God, anything goes. In other words, God often functions as the very thing that authorizes and underwrites human cruelty, historically speaking. God is often that which underwrites all kinds of bigotry and cruelty in the world, unconsciously, of course. In other words, psychologically speaking, God often functions as the personification and the projection of our deepest prejudices, fears, our deepest desires for power and comfort. Have you ever noticed that the God people worship often shares all of their political and social views? The God of evangelicalism is a white capitalist patriotic male who hates socialism almost as much as he hates abortion and gay rights. You don't have to be Sigmund Freud to understand what's going on here. It's actually more accurate, therefore, to say that with God, anything goes. You can literally get away with anything if you believe God is on your side. 
and many people do. But what happens in deconstruction is that God, as an unconscious projection of ourselves, is itself deconstructed. It becomes very difficult, maybe not impossible, but it get, becomes very difficult to use God as a means to justify ourselves anymore because we no longer believe in things like the inerrancy of Scripture or that an ancient sacred text is the ultimate moral authority and the literal reading of it is the ultimate moral authority. We no longer believe in God as a being or as an all-powerful entity on high who maybe we no longer, no longer believe that that being or that God exists or intervenes in history. I don't know. It gets very hard in deconstruction to project onto that God anymore. Deconstruction, you could say, deconstructs not only our theology, but the very foundations of our moral categories and allows us to reconstruct on a firmer foundation, the foundation of love and justice and questions like, what is best for human well-being and human flourishing? Once you tear down the edifice of the big other, the almighty supreme being on high and the inerrancy of scripture, once you tear that curtain, suddenly you are left wondering, well, what do we, what do we have to build on? Oh, we've got love. We've got compassion. We've got empathy. We've got questions like what is best for human well-being? Those questions are, are kind of rock foundation, in my opinion, to use a parable of Jesus's, <laughs> to build on religion is like the shifting sand. It's an unstable ground. But to build on love, empathy, compassion, and questions like, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? That's a rock foundation. I'm not saying it's simple. I'm not saying that the answer is always clear. But it's a much firmer foundation than so-called divine revelation in ancient texts and traditions and things like that. Hope that makes sense. So I think deconstruction has actually made us or given us more moral clarity than we had before, not less, right? A lot of conservatives, even progressives, coming into a, a progressive church or looking at a progressive, progressive Christianity often say that there's there's a, there's less morality there. No, actually, I think there's more. Deconstruction has given, has given us more moral clarity, not less. Not only does anything not go now, now that we're progressive Christians, but actually I think we've got a stronger sense of what's right and wrong. We've got a deeper sense or sensitivity towards injustice. Do we not? Deconstruction made us better people, I'm arguing, not worse made us better people, more loving people, I think, more compassionate, more concerned about the poor, the oppressed, more concerned about the matters of this life, this world, rather than heaven beyond and how can we get in, avoid hell. These you know, deconstruction made us more focused on this life and each other, how we, how we can make this place better, I think. Deconstruction made us more grounded in empathy, love, and compassion, not less. And as we pivot towards communion this morning, you know, this sacrament is, of course, symbolic of Jesus's shed blood and broken body on the cross, which, of course, raises the question of atonement. 
here we are back at the sin question again. We're told Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and this sacrament is emblematic of that sin sacrifice, that act of atonement for sin. How are we to understand that now, Jesus' death? Because it over, overlaps with this topic this morning. To be clear, I no longer believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but I believe he died because of our sins, so to speak. He died because of the unjust and cruel ways that human beings treat each other, especially the poor and the outcasts and the broken. Jesus, in a sense, became the embodiment of the nation's cruelty and injustice. You could say he became the personification, the scapegoat for their inability to give space to one who would challenge the system and its injustice. He didn't die for our sins, but he certainly died because of human sin. I'm putting that in scare quotes. Meaning all the cruel and terrible ways that we treat each other, specifically those who blow the whistle and fight for justice. In this way, Jesus' death revealed that the powers that be were truly evil and weak and insecure. In a sense, Jesus' death functioned, or you could think of it like it revealed how a, an abused woman reveals how her male abuser is really weak and powerless and insecure. In the same way, Jesus' death revealed just how insecure, weak, and powerless the powers of this world truly are. He didn't die for our sins, but he died because of our sins, and in that way revealed just how sinful sin really is, just how cruel and unjust the systems and the powers of this world really are. So as we partake this morning, as we receive Holy Communion and serve it to each other, let us meditate on this as Max leads us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. I was just thinking about the scripture that says breaks my laws on their hearts. Yeah. And also to him that knows to do good, but do it not, to him it is sin. So I'm thinking if I steal or manipulate someone emotionally or physically or whatever, that's sin. I it keeps coming back to the way I treat other people. If I'm using them sexually or, you know for money-wise or emotionally, um, then I feel guilty about it. I think we have a conscience, I think, that can dictate to us um, what is sin, what is it. When I feel guilty about something, if I'm living my life in a certain way, and the way I treat people, and I feel guilty about that, I think that's, to me, God's way of leading me back in the right direction, saying, don't do that. <laughs> you know, that's just kind of what I get from the idea of sin. No, it's good. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't mean to say today that 
our moral choices have no spiritual significance, but they absolutely have spiritual significance. How we might articulate that or think about that might be unique to us as individuals, but I absolutely think that this, these questions of morality and ethics and how we are to live with each other and the consequences of that, of our decisions, our ideas and behaviors, they absolutely have spiritual significance. Um, but yeah, thanks, Randy. Um, Emily, maybe would you pass that? Um, I don't really have like a, I don't know, like I'm just kind of starting to process this, this a little bit, but this got me thinking about um, the idea of like original sin and specifically to women um, because like we were basically raised being taught that like we were forever punished because of something that the first woman did and like literally told like I remember when I was at camp like a Christian camp and my counselor was on her period and I don't even think that like I had had one yet and she was like writhing with cramps on her bed and she was like, why did Eve have to sin? Like, she was just so, I mean, like, we were literally told, like, in the Bible that we were punished with, like, a monthly, I mean, and, like, just think about how fucked up that is. And, like, even just the idea of, like, your first, like, this is your entrance into womanhood is, like, a painful punishment from God for something that Eve did at the beginning of time is like the message that we were given. Like, I was just like thinking about like how, like just fucked up that is. Well, yeah, and, and you, you you raised up the, the patriarchal message and all yeah. of that too, that it's women, it, women introduce sin <laughs> into this world, that it all goes back to women's, it's their fault. But yeah. like, I mean, that's written in the Bible that yeah. like our yeah. pains of childbirth. And right. then, I, I don't know if it like specifically talks about your monthly, you know, but I think people then have like taken it to that as well. That like it involves pain in large part because of sin. Yeah. And of course, that's a misreading of the text, you know, to assume that that is literal history, first of all, you know, that 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 story is. But that's not, what's being taught. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Right. But what's interesting about that story in relationship to sin or, you know, moral wrongdoing, right? Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And upon eating that fruit, their eyes are opened. What are they open to? Well, they realize that they're naked. And that that is their true created condition. God made them naked, but they weren't aware of that until they ate from the tree of knowledge. And so what that story is really about is this human realization of our mortality and morality, that we are born finite, limited, lacking creatures. We, we do wrong despite knowing it's wrong, where we die one day, we don't know what happens next. And this is just, you know, them having to leave the garden after that is symbolic of the end of innocence. Ignorance is bliss. Innocence is a garden of Eden. It's, it's bliss. But once you cross the bridge of naivete, once you realize the truth of the human condition, we are moral agents and mortal, and mortal you know, that's, that's the end of innocence. You know, that's what that story is about. It's not about the, the fall of man. It's about a fall into consciousness, a fall into awareness. It's about the human spiritual genesis. When we woke up, realized you know, unlike many of the other species on this planet, perhaps we alone understand our mortality and our, our that we're moral agents. Well, it's that's also, what that story is really about. And it's also not literal. <laughs> literal in the sense of history. But I do think it's literally true about 
our own self-awareness. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it's a great story. I love that story, but gosh, it's been twisted. Yeah. Good stuff. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, Jen, yeah. So I feel like you just kind of like dropped this bomb at the end of your talk and then that could have oh. been introduced like halfway through and dissected a little bit more of like Please, Jesus, go ahead. Jesus didn't die for our sins. Um, because I think even as like someone who hasn't been a Christian since I was 13, that still is like like doesn't compute quite. Um so I don't know. Can you talk about that? Sure. More? Yeah, that's a great question. And for me, what that means is we so many of us were raised on what's called penal substitutionary atonement. Everybody hear that term before? Well, there's a few different atonement theories, but that tends to be the most popular one in the church. Penal substitutionary atonement, this idea that Jesus died on the cross as a substitution for us because God was so mad, or maybe, yeah, wrathful about our sin. And the only way to set us free from sin's bondage, meaning our destiny in hell, but also the fact that sin controls us, right? Our sin nature. The only way to set us free from that was for, you know, God to pour out a just punishment on somebody, a perfect person, even his own son, no less. And that somehow uh, alleviated God's wrath and allowed him to love and accept us again. Because now he looks at us through the lens of Jesus's righteousness. Again, all of this is very, doesn't make sense. It's, it's very metaphysical, right? I've just said a lot that is completely out of this world. And, um, but that's penal substitutionary atonement theory that says that Jesus died for our sins and orders, you know, so that God could love and accept us again. And I find that idea to be not only just bizarre, but also really toxic. You know, it, it teaches us that God is this brutal, sadistic, or wrathful being, you know, think of, think of a parent, you know, I, I have two kids. Imagine if I said to Lucy, I have to brutalize your sister, punish your sister, hurt your sister, Sophie, in order to love and accept you, you know, or something like that. I mean, it's just, and it's, of course, it's based on blood magic, the ancient ritual tradition. All of this is grounded in history and culture. It has to do with blood magic. This idea of sacrifice, if I sacrifice this goat, you know, it'll appease the gods. It'll, you know, and it, that goat, whatever, that bull becomes somehow uh, vicariously me on that altar, somehow, some way, by sacrificing that thing of value. God is appeased by my sacrifice and forgives me and blesses me once again. That idea is absolutely at play in a lot of Christian theology about Jesus' atoning death. And I, again, I find that to be deeply toxic and, and, not to be true. But nevertheless, I see Jesus's death on the cross as being related to human wrongdoing, and in some way an embodiment of human wrongdoing, injustice and cruelty on a grand scale, on a systematic scale. Jesus was crucified uh, as an act of, you know, because he was guilty of sedition, right? For, in essence, posing a threat to the unjust powers of the day, both the Roman, uh, you know, uh, powers in Judea, but also the the uh, the religious authorities saw him as a threat. Um, and maybe a whole other talk needs to be done on this. But um, 
you know, so I, again, that's where I, I get that line. I don't believe Jesus died for our sins and some kind of supernatural transaction with the Lord, with the father, but I believe he died because of human sin. And in that way, uh, functions as in some ways it was, it was redemptive, but, but for me, that's not a supernatural thing anymore. Does that make sense at all? I would love to hear your reaction to that or thoughts about any of this. William, maybe maybe this should be next week's topic. Okay. Steve's nodding yes. Jen, you're nodding yes. Yeah. There's so much there. Um, you know. Um, yeah, so we can talk about atonement. There's other atonement theories. I won't go into it more, but let's just talk about it next week. That let's I'll do my best to answer your question next week. And then if I don't, you can always say you raise more questions at the end. Yeah. And I think maybe how does that change everything? How does that change? Because that's anything? like a pretty fundamental basic. Yeah. Thing. Like, what does that change? What does that change? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Okay. We'll deal with that next week. Put a pin on pin in that. It's a longer conversation. Yeah. Okay. Um, anybody else this morning? Yeah. Aiden. Um, first of all, I realized just a second ago when you were talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, that's kind of like, a metaphor in some ways or can be a metaphor for deconstruction when we like allow ourselves to open our eyes to morality and yeah. then and then we get exiled from the church the, the end of innocence the end of the garden exactly yeah. yeah so that's hilarious um but i was also just going to say that i i thought that um the section in your talk this morning about um us finding a new morality and even a, a stronger morality and stronger foundation than essentially like the bible and god and um you called it divine um like revelation divine revelation yeah. yeah um i just think that's such a powerful idea i think for me at least specifically like throughout the whole process of deconstruction which has been a long one feeling like and we talked about this a little bit last week too how there's kind of a like a thinness sometimes to our own, the morality that we then build on our own. Mm -hmm. um, so that idea that like, now that we've set those things aside and we have something that's even more true and grounded to base our morality off of, is just a very powerful idea. Um, yeah. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Glad it resonated with you, yeah. Anybody else this morning? Okay. Um, I just remembered, Jen and everybody else, I am actually speaking, I'm doing a pastor swap next week, where Ryan Pryor from Mission Hills is preaching here, and I'm preaching there as it's part of my ordination requirement within the Disciples of Christ. People are like, what is he talking about? So I'm going to speak there next week. He's going to speak here. So we'll get to this topic. It just might not be for a few weeks, but this is a great topic. Um, but yeah. Thanks so much. All right. Well, let us conclude, as we usually do, by saying our, our benediction together. Let's say this now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace. Thank you.